0: We are in our second series looking at the foundations of what we as a church believe. We have a phrase in the vineyard called the main and the plain. And the heart behind that phrase is that we want to be a church that doesn't get lost in obscure kind of theology and bizarre ideas, but we focus on the main things that the, that the Bible teaches and that Jesus teaches us about the gospel. Now, in the early church, there were a few statements written uh, that kind of summed up the truth of the Bible and the truth of Jesus Christ. And these were called the creeds. And when we talk about the main and the plain, really what we're doing is we're talking about what these creeds refer to. Uh, And say across this series, and James opened it last week, we're going to focus on one of these creeds, one of these statements called the Apostles' Creed. Um, And as James explained last week, uh, we want to be crystal clear. We are not preaching the creeds. We are preaching the Bible. The creeds have no authority in and of themselves, but they point to the authority of the Bible. Now, some of you were like, well, obviously, that's, that's fair. But for some people, it's a really important distinction. So we just wanted to be crystal clear as we began and as we go through the whole series that you would have that in the forefront of your mind. There's a helpful analogy that I think James would have used with you last week of the moon and the sun. So the moon, it has no authority in the light shining game, does it? It cannot give off its own light. But when you look at it, you see light. And what's happening is it's reflecting the light of the sun. And that's the same thing with the creeds. They have no authority in and of themselves in the truth-sharing game, but what they do is they point to the source of truth. And so that's what's happening when we read the creeds. We're finding the truth summarized from the Bible. Now, last week, um, when I preached this in Central, Keith, who was on media, came up to me in the morning and was like, Oh, he was like, Are you trying to break the record for number of verses projected on a screen during one talk? And I was like, Yes, I am. Na- the nature of the cream. Oh, I'm jumping around here. Let me. That one's all coiled up. How's this? One? Ooh. boomy. Should beatbox. That's all. I won't, don't worry. <laughs> So, the, the nature of preaching through something's like, something like the creeds is we've got to look at a, a number of different ideas. And by nature of that, it means it's quite hard to preach from one passage on it. So we are going to jump around. So if you've got your Bibles with you, it might be quite hard to follow. They should hopefully all come up on the screen. Uh, and for some of you who are maybe more used to kind of being rooted in one passage in a preacher, I love that. We do normally do that as a church, but today is going to be slightly different. So... With that said, let's read the statement that unites Christians around the globe. This is, as we meet together on a Sunday morning, as people meet across the world, this is the truth that unites so many of us. So I'm going to read it. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You can feel free to say amen. I know we're not that Pentecostal, but we can have a little bit of life in us. Amen. Yes, there we go. I got called Pentecostal Paul last week. There we go. So last week, James looked at the first line, and no prizes for guessing that I'm looking at the second line. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, you would have probably noticed when I just read the creed that a large chunk of it is about Jesus. And it should be. He, He is the centerpiece of our faith. He's the foundation of what we believe, and we would be nothing without him. Bishop Stephen Neal wrote in his book, Christian Faith and Other Faiths, the old saying, Christianity is Christ, is almost exactly true. The historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth is the criterion by which every Christian affirmation has to be judged, and in the light of which it stands or falls. So we are going to spend a few weeks together looking at the most important figure in history. We'll go through the next few lines of the creed about Jesus. And our prayer is that as we do this, that it's not so much about learning all of the right things about Jesus. That that is important. It is much more about reigniting love and awe of Jesus. That we would become more captivated by him. That we would become more compelled by his love. We don't want to get lost in dry theology as we do this. We want to encounter the living God. So let me begin by telling a little story. The last week, uh, or the week before last, uh, we had a smart meter fitted. We managed to be one of the lucky few who got in before they've stopped coming out, haven't they? Uh, I ended up chatting to this BT engineer guy, and really, really nice guy. We were talking about faith, talking about Jesus, uh, and um, well, actually, as we were chatting, I was washing up, and he was kind of in the hallway, sort of, you know, with the stuff that he does Uh, and I did that thing you know when you're washing up and you're talking to someone he is not kind of in the bowl as they would be and I was washing up a sharp knife and I did that thing where I just ran my thumb along the blade of the knife and so, I, you know, it's, it's like kind of watery, it's famous, and I'm, like, oozing blood at this point. Like, it's, it is going everywhere. And he's sort of chatting, and I'm like, well, we're having a great chat about Jesus. How do I, what do I do? And I'm like, I'm like, so I'm kind of dripping blood everywhere, trying to keep this conversation going. And he's looking up, and he's not noticing. And so I'm like, okay. And I'm looking around. I'm married to a doctor. We don't have a plaster in the house. So... <laughs> So I eventually find some like this kind of random bandage thing that we have. And I wrap it around, wrap it around, wrap it around. And we have this great chat about Jesus with this guy. Um, And what was interesting is that he was like, you know what, I think there probably is a God. And we were chatting about that. And he was like, but for me, there is just no way Jesus could be God. And he had a number of different reasons why. And we went through lots of different questions. And he's actually interested in coming to one of the Alpha courses, which would be really cool and be a great space for him. But it was just this interesting thing that he was like, I do think there could be something. But for me, there is just no way that Jesus could be God. So let me begin by asking you guys, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Was he a great moral teacher? Was he maybe actually, in your mind, an egotistical preacher? He just wanted a big following. Maybe he was deleted in your mind. or Maybe he was God. Maybe he was who he says he is. You know what, there will be a range of opinions in the room, and as Ellie said during notices, wherever you are at on this journey of exploring who Jesus is, you are so, so welcome here. But we want to unpack what we believe about Jesus today and help us in that journey. So when we declare this line of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, what are we actually saying? Well, we're going to go through a little uh, bit by bit of this line. And naturally, um, there is a limit on how much detail we can go into. Uh, So I just want to throw out three helpful resources for you today. If you're here and you think this is something that I would like to kind of wrestle with a bit more find out a bit more. The first, uh, there are three books. The first book is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. The second book is The Case for Christ by Lee Strabel. And the third book is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. So Mere Christianity, The Case for Christ, and The Reason for God. These are some good books that just begin to unpack some of the theology and some of the arguments that, um, that you might find helpful. So, let's get into the creed. The first thing that we're saying when we say this line, I believe in Jesus Christ, is quite simple. But we're saying that he existed. That he was a person and that what we believe about Jesus was firmly re- is firmly rooted in history that the things we read in the New Testament actually happened. Now, it's virtually impossible to be a responsible historian these days and to question whether Jesus existed or not. So this first part of what we're saying in the Creed is quite easy for both us and for people who don't believe that Jesus was God to say. There's wide-ranging evidence that um, there actually was a person called Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the first century AD that went around claiming to do the things he did and developing a following evidence from non-Christian sources like Josephus, the first century Jewish Pharisee, and Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, as Wikipedia describes him. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. (laughs) But but these these non-Christian sources help us validate what the Bible is saying. So that's the starting point. We're saying that we do believe Jesus existed. Quite simple, great, wonderful. The next thing that we're saying is a little bit more subtle, because we're not simply saying that he existed, we're saying that he saves. And here's why. We learn at the beginning of Matthew's gospel what Jesus' name means. And if you're new to the Bible, as Ellie said in the is the gospels are some of these, these stories um, of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection that you find at the start of the New Testament. And we find this right at the start of Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Uh, an angel appears uh, to Joseph. Jesus adopted dad in a dream, and he says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here's the key. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What Jesus will do is summed up in his name, save people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means uh, Yahweh saves. Now, Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God, and just to throw out another book, because I want to get off scot-free and get you to do all the work, Uh, there's a book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name, which is just this wonderful look at the name of Yahweh and why it is important, Uh, so really recommend that to you as well. Now, when you're thinking about naming a child, uh, some, many of you will be parents in the room, but most of us, if we're not parents, have thought about one day what we're going to call our kids. I imagine the room will be split. Some of us will go, we just want a name that sounds nice and don't care what it means. And the others of us will go, no, we really, wanna, really want the name of our child to carry sort of like an important meaning, something that we would like to be said about them. You know, what? wherever we're at, back in the day, a name's meaning did carry great significance. As you said someone's name, you were declaring the meaning of that name over them. You were speaking that truth out loud. So when we say we believe in Jesus, what we're saying is we believe in Yahweh saves. We believe in God saves. And as that verse in Matthew has just said, he saves us from our sins. That for every wrong thing we have thought that we have done, that would make us unworthy. Jesus came to earth. He came to take the punishment that was rightfully ours and offer us forgiveness and freedom. And that that offer is one of complete grace. That through no work of my own, no good thing that I have done, no amount of feeling holy that I do, even no amount of like keeping myself pure, that does nothing to earn this gift of grace that's given to me. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 says this, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians 2 it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. And maybe you're here today and as we're unpacking this, maybe what's going to happen is you're going to realize that actually you have been boasting in something other than the saving work of Jesus. Now, The reality is those of us who do know Jesus, we're not going to be kind of like, oh, yeah, no, it's about my works. Because we know the good Christian answer. So, no, of course it's by grace. Of course it is. But when we look back at the last few months, maybe even a few years of our lives, what we begin to see is that actually though though we say we believe that the way that we act or the things that we come back and the things that we do reveal to us that maybe in our hearts, We believe the good works we have been doing in some way do earn us this gift of salvation. Or in some way make us holier than other people and more deserving than them. And maybe today is just a moment to come back and be like, Jesus, you know what, I have been basing in something else. And I want to come back and remember again that it's only basing in what you have done. So, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So I believe, so we believe he existed in Jesus, in God saves, in Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Bible, there is this uh, sort of idea uh, and theme that runs throughout of God's people searching for a deliverer, for a king who will lead them out of uh, slavery and bondage and defeat the powers that oppress them. Now, this king would be called the Messiah, and Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, So Christ is actually a title. And when we're saying Jesus Christ, we're not saying his last name. We're saying this title about him. See, the Bible teaches that as a result of our sin, we human beings face forces that are too strong for us, powers that overwhelm us. Maybe it's the power of addiction. Maybe to substances, to behaviors, even to people. Maybe it's the power of shame or self-condemnation or anxiety, which is so prevalent in our society right now. There's also the reality that it's the the power of a spiritual enemy called Satan who inspires the evil that we see in our culture. There are powerful forces at work. But throughout the Bible, there is a hope that one day God would send a perfect king that would bring us out of those powers. And who is this long-awaited king, the deliverer? Obviously, we can all guess it is Jesus. Jesus. In Romans 1, there's this wonderful summary where Paul just goes through. Who is this person that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And then in verse 4 of Romans chapter 1, he says, Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ. We are saying that we believe Jesus is this king. We are saying he is the king who has the power to bring us freedom. And as I said that list a moment ago, maybe there was something that resonated with you. of like, actually, that is the power that I feel oppressed by. Or maybe I didn't list it, but you, you just know in your mind, you're like, yes, this is the thing I struggle with. I can't break free of this. I can't break free of this. And maybe this morning is a morning where Jesus Christ, the King, the one who has the power to break those powers, is here and he can set you free. And it's a moment where we just have to come and go, you know what, Jesus, I need to let you into this part of my life. I don't want to hold it back from you anymore. Would you come and would you bring me freedom? The next part of the line, I believe, we are rattling through this. Thank you for staying with me. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. God is a relational God. And it is the mystery and it's the beauty of Christianity that we believe in a Trinitarian God. What does that mean? That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are separate, but they are also one. Three in one, one in three. And praise the Lord that we don't have time to dive into the complexity of the Trinity. (laughs) Praise the Lord that Ian Douglas and Savior Douglas are not here for me to say email them all of your questions. (laughs) But really, you know, if if you are interested and maybe a bit confused about how on earth God could be three in one and one in three. Uh, the book I recommended, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, has a really um, helpful chapter called The Three-Personal God that you might find um, helpful. So maybe that's a starting point, but do email Ian and for your questions. They would love to read them. <laughs> we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is one part of the Trinity, and he is fully God. And through belief in his name, we are given the full rights of sonship in the family of God. Back, or sorry, in, so back into one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, uh, so John chapter one verse twelve, it says this: Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then Romans eight, which is a letter, another letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, it goes and unpacks this idea a bit further. In Romans eight verse seventeen, it says: Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. Remember that BT engineer? This was the stumbling block for him. He, just, he was like, I just can't believe that Jesus is God. And he had lots of different things, but for him one of them was, even if, even if Jesus did come to earth, he was like, immediately that would make him not God you know, and I can understand, I can appreciate where he was coming from because it is an astonishing claim that Jesus is God. God incarnate. But that is the claim. John 1, a few verses later, says this. No one, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. This is the core of our belief, that Jesus was God. And what I love is that the the final phrase in this line of the creed hammers this belief home even more. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as Lord. If you've read your Old Testament, you'll often see it in capitals. Um, And the thing is, this is actually the same term that is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Lord, Lord, Lord. Now... This BT engineer, he said this to me, and lots of people have said it to me, and you might even be feeling this yourself or have had friends that have said this to you. They're like, yeah, but you say Jesus is God, but he was, he was never very specific. He was always vague. He never said it. And you know what? I can appreciate when we read Scripture, sometimes it can seem a bit confusing and a bit vague, but I just want to unpack a few examples where Jesus was not vague and that we, we would maybe miss it without understanding all of the context, but he was not vague. He was very, very clear. So in John chapter 8... Verse 58, this is Jesus talking to some Jewish Pharisees, and he is using another Old Testament name for God. And he says this, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born. Now, Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. Kind of, we're talking about 1,500 plus years before Jesus walked the earth. So these guys are like, okay, before Abraham, Jesus says this, before Abraham was born, I am. And that, well, that, that phrase, I am, was an Old Testament name for God. God would, say, God would say, I am. And so he's saying to these Jews, before Abraham existed, I'm God. I was there, and I am. That is an audacious statement to make. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Of course they did. Because for them, this was the most arrogant and rude statement that you could make. It was blasphemy. Another example in another gospel, Mark chapter 2, in a culture where only God could forgive sins. So he's there. Jesus is surrounded by people who are very adamant. Only God has the authority and the power to forgive sins. To a paralyzed man, in Mark chapter 2 verse 5, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He is making a really clear statement here. I have the power because I'm God. And then back into the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus claims to be one with the Father. So the chapter, sorry, chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. How they so often responded. Because we can sometimes read it and we can miss some of the context. But for them, Jesus was being clear. He was saying he is God. In Matthew 16, after finding out what other people think, Jesus asks his disciple Peter, that's all great, but who do you say I am? So let's go back to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you think about him? Is he God? Is he Lord of your life? Is he someone that you have surrendered to? Let me ask a different question. Why do you love Jesus? Or to put a different angle, what about Jesus do you love right now? Now, those questions might be quite hard to answer. Uh, and especially might be quite hard if you're here and you're, you're not quite sure what, you, what you've landed on about Jesus yet. And that's totally fine. Some of us in the room who do know and follow Jesus will be like, Oh, I'm struggling to answer that question. Because they're tough questions. And that's because we can love someone without being able to articulate why. Now, I had a moment like this six or so months ago. So I'm married to um, Claire. Uh, who goes to our central site, so you guys won't get to see her very often. But when we go to bed, our routine is quite simple. We brush our teeth, we get into bed, we pray together, uh, and we say we love each other, and then we go to sleep. Now, for me, my bedtime routine, uh, when I brush my teeth, I'm effectively turning off my brain. All right? <laughs> I, I love conversations. I'm a bit more of an extrovert than Claire during the day. I brush my teeth. I don't want to talk anymore. Not a lot of thinking's going on at this point. I'll be honest, my bedtime prayers are not my best prayers. Uh, Claire has, on more occasions than I would like to admit, rebuked me <laughs> for my prayer and made me do it again. LAUGHTER <So, laughs> There we are. If you need me to pray for you, then just don't ask me after about 10 p.m. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but, but Claire's routine is a bit different, right? When she brushes her teeth, she suddenly, like, switches on. and She's like, well, hey, let's chat. And she would, she would perfectly admit, like, she is a much more introverted person than me, much less conversational than me during the day, except when bedtime comes. And it's like, hey, I just want to talk to you. Can you just tell me, like, tell me things? And I'm like, no. No, I can't. I don't have any things to tell you. So about six months or so ago... Okay, We were there. Uh, I'd prayed a probably pretty average prayer. I said, I love you. And I'm lying there innocently. And Claire just rolls over and she's like, why do you love me? (laughs) Now, a word of advice for any men in the room, any married men, any fiancés, boyfriends, or people who at one point in their life would like a happy wife. (laughs) Don't hesitate if your lovely lady asks you that question. Don't, Don't so, be silent, seeming as if you're trying to rack your brain for an answer, and then when you've come up with what you think is a great answer, say, because you are my wife. Because <laughs> in my head, right, that's a great answer, because she'll always be my wife. It's, it's who she is. Say, so, you know, in the very un- like, unlikely scenario that she becomes a horrible person or does something really bad, I'll still love her because she'll still be my wife. Yeah, explaining it didn't help then either. (laughs) But you know what What was happening in this moment is we discovered that I was not maybe the best husband because the next night we revisited it and it turns out I hadn't really thought more about it. (laughs) But what was happening, right, is, is Claire was asking me really to articulate that I knew her, that I cared about her, that I thought about her that I I appreciated the different parts of her behavior. And what what we discovered was actually I was being a bit of a bad husband at this time because I had just become so used to living with Claire, seeing her every day, being around her, that I had stopped actually appreciating the things about her that I knew and that I loved. Because, you know, in the early stages of dating and engagement and early stages of marriage, I'd been able to reel off things instantly. Because I I dwelt much more on what was great about Claire. But what had happened was I had become so familiar with Claire that I had stopped appreciating her. And I still loved her. Of course I did. Of course, of course I still loved her. But I couldn't articulate why. And you know what? I think the same is so true for many of us and Jesus. That we know we love him. We know we do. But actually we've become so familiar with him That we've lost any sense of awe and wonder. That we've become so familiar with him, we've forgotten how outrageous that gift of grace was that he gave us. Now look, familiarity with Jesus is a great thing. But we've always got to remember and come back to the sense of awe, the sense of wonder. We've never got, we, we can never, ever lose sight of what he's done for us. And maybe here today, you're actually like, you know what, I have lost that sense of awe and wonder with Jesus. And it's a moment to come back to him and say, Jesus, you know I love you. But actually, if I had to say why right now, I'd struggle to answer. And I don't want to have to struggle. Now, for those of us exploring faith, we might be sat here today and actually be a bit surprised that we could or even should think about why we love Jesus maybe we're even surprised at the idea that we should love him like worship him sure follow his teachings okay that might make sense but love him that sounds pretty intimate for a 2000-year-old man but see at the heart of the christian faith is the reality and the truth that we can have a personal one-on-one dynamic evolving changing con- consistent constant personal relationship and that through belief and faith in jesus we are saved and through relationship with him we mature in our faith The thing that astounds me, though, right, is not that we just get to have a relationship with Jesus, but that Jesus actively wants relationship with us. He chooses us. Back into the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, Jesus is saying this to his followers in verse 15 and 16. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Ye did not choose me, but I chose you. And he goes on. We have a Jesus who chooses us. And more than chooses us just to be his servants, he chooses us to be his friends. And that is true for every single person in the room today. You know, if you want to find out about Jesus' intention for relationship with you, read another chapter in the book of John, John 17. This is an amazing passage where we get an insight into Jesus' prayer life. It's a prayer from Jesus to the Father for us. In John 17, I encourage you, read it, dwell on it this week, meditate on the truth within it. But just to pick out one verse from it, John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I really like that Jesus prays in the third person. He's <laughs> a good lad. The word know that he uses here, though, it refers to a knowledge much deeper than just factual knowledge, the knowing about God. It's more like to know through personal experience, first-hand experience. To experientially know would be another way to translate it. So the question is, do you know Jesus like that? Personally, in a relational sense, not in a theoretical or a distant sense, because he really wants to know you. See, and when we know Jesus and through knowing him, peace, joy, freedom unimaginable are available to each of us. And if you're here and you follow Jesus for a while, the question is, are you connected in that relationship? Or does Jesus feel more like a distant figure to you? That you're like, you know what? I do love Jesus and I follow him and you know, I'm, 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 just, I'm amazed by who he is. But actually right now, if I'm honest, he does not feel like a friend to me. He does not feel like someone that I personally know, that I could communicate with, that I could sit with in his presence and hear from him. He, he just feels like someone who I like, you know, I like what he says, but I don't feel connected with him in any way. And maybe today... Though he has become familiar to the point of being unknown to you, he can reveal himself again to you afresh. And you can come back and say, Jesus, I want to reignite this relationship with you. Because today is not about going through facts and information so that we intellectually know enough about Jesus. Though that's great and that's important. I'm all for that. It is about reigniting love for Jesus. Because Jesus is the king who offers friendship. He's the savior who is humble, the deity who serves. He is worthy of our attention and our affection. See, the hope and the peace that he offers, they're real, tangible things. And you know what? J- just to sort of give you an example in my life of why I think this is so important, uh, I have needed, over the last month or so, the hope and the peace that Jesus offers to be real and not to be theoretical. Um, my family has had a bit of a battering over August, you know, it's kind of too soon really to be appropriate to go pu- like, kind of speak publicly about the ins and outs of it, but it's fair to say the Crouchley clan has just been battered from all sides, it's just been bad news, bad news, ill health, bad news, bad news, and, and really, over the course of this time, what I did not need was to know the right stuff about Jesus, like that's helpful, that's good, what I needed was to know Jesus, was to be able to sit in his presence. Look, honestly, throughout August, m- mostly what I've been able to do is really nothing much. I've just been able to put a worship song on and sit in the presence of God and go, God, I, I don't know what to say, but thank you that you're here. And what I've encountered in that time is, is this peace that passes all understanding. That I shouldn't feel peace and I shouldn't even feel joy in this season, but actually the Lord in his kindness brings it. Because they're real tangible things. And that is why I care about this so much. Because it's life changing. You know, we're not just here saying, oh yeah, like Jesus is, is true and that's great, but it doesn't affect your life. When we know this, it changes everything. It changes how we handle grief, how we handle bad news, how we handle sickness, how we ha- family devastation, all of that stuff. It's, it's how we get through that. I do not know how anyone gets through stuff without Jesus. Like, I just don't. But the reality is we don't have to. And for those of us in the room, we get to have this close connection with Jesus where we can sit in his presence and we can experience his kindness and his peace can come. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do you want him to be? Because I sure know I'd rather him be a personal God, a king who loves me, who offers friendship, that I can connect with, than a distant figure that I know enough things about. Who do you want him to be? Who do you say he is? How are you going to respond to him? Because if he is God, if this line in the creed that we're saying is true, we believe in Jesus Christ, that he saves us from our sins, that we can be free from an unmerited gift of grace, that he is God the Son, that he is Lord, that he is God. It changes everything. And so the question is, what are we going to do about it? To come back to that, why do we love Jesus? Why do you love him? What do you think about him? And this week as you go about your life, what are you going to do knowing that you have a Jesus who offers you friendship? Why don't we stand?